Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Opening Bell, the Boxing News podcast. My name is Matt Christie, the editor of Boxing News. And it seems fitting today that on what would have been the 79th birthday of Muhammad Ali, we bring you a special interview with Ali that was conducted in 1972. And I'd be very surprised if you'd heard this one before. Now, just a little bit of context and history on on this interview that you're about to hear. Last year, in the thick of the first lockdown, when I was struggling to fill the pages of Boxing News simply because there was no boxing going on, um, I was sent an email by Aki Sintring over in Sweden um, who told me uh, he had an exclusive interview with Muhammad Ali that had never been published and had never been heard. I was obviously a little bit suspicious of that, yet when he sent me the sound file and I immediately recognised the voice of Ali, uh, the joy that I felt is, is hard to describe, to be honest with you. It was, it was almost magical. Now you can imagine the recording, which was made in March 1972, is nearly 50 years old now, so it's not in great condition, but I'm confident that you will enjoy it. Um, a bit more information on, on Aki Sintring, the man who tracked Ali down in Tokyo. Um, Aki Sintring was travelling the world at the time. Um, and around him, he said, were fellow travellers with beards, long hair, um, taking various drugs, drinking a lot. Aki Sintring was the opposite of that. He stayed sober the entire time. He kept his hair short and neat and tidy. He was well-groomed. And the reason was he hoped to track down Muhammad Ali um, and interview him, which he managed to do in March 1972 in Tokyo. Now, at that point, this was after Muhammad Ali had lost to Joe Frazier for the first time. Um, He was on the comeback trail um, and he was about to fight a decent contender called Mac Foster. Now, Aki Sintring realized that the people that were talking to Muhammad Ali, the reporters and what have you, were doing so in the daytime and in the evening. So Aki Sintring went along to Ali's hotel. He got a taxi there and arrived between half four and five o'clock in the morning. And within about 10 minutes of waiting in the hotel reception, in came Muhammad Ali in that famous grey tracksuit that you would now recognise in pictures and those big old running boots. Um, and he was sweating. Aki Sintring went up to Muhammad Ali and asked for the interview. Ali promised that he would give him an interview, but first he had to go and shower. About an hour later is where the interview or what the recording that you hear starts. And what you hear, first of all, is Ali doing a magic trick with two pieces of string uh, to illustrate the people that didn't have any faith in him at the start. Now, Ali asks for the tape to be switched off. It's not part of the interview, he says. And then after that, you will hear the interview begin. It's very interesting stuff. And bear in mind, while you're listening, this is in 1972. So Ali was chasing the rematch with Joe Frazier. He was still justifying his stance on the Vietnam War. And he was talking about his religion and whether or not um, that was something of a contradiction to him being a fighter by profession. It's nothing less than fascinating. I'm confident that you will enjoy it. And Muhammad Ali, wherever, wherever you are, many, many happy returns of the day. You remain greatly missed. There's some ropes in my, uh, my school teacher always told me that something short 
couldn't be the equal to something medium size. Yes. And she said something medium size couldn't be the equal to something long. Oh. And I told the teacher she was wrong because if I take these ropes and turn them all up, you'll see that they're equal because they all have two ends. And these ropes are equal because they're all the same color, yellow gold. And they're equal because they all are made out of the same material and they call rope. And she says, that still don't make them equal. They're different sizes. I said, well, see, teacher, go upon farther. The little rope has a loop. The medium-sized rope has a loop. And the big rope has a loop. She says, yes, but they're still not equal. The loops are different sizes. I said, teacher, if I could just stretch them, all these ropes are the same size. And the teacher didn't understand that. She said, it must be a trick. I said, it's no trick, teacher. I said, we have one rope right here. And I reach in here and get two more. We have two ropes. This will make three. So after that, she said, you're a kid of medium intelligence. She said, you always come out on the short end. And she said, in the long run, you'll never make it. She couldn't understand how that I made all those equal, but I did. For how, for how many, when did you learn this trick? This is no trick, this is power of concentration. These ropes, if you check these ropes, you see that they do not stretch. They do not stretch. I'll do it one more time. The teacher told me that, you can turn it off. We know, this is no interview, you can just turn that off. Yeah, I don't like that. There was another fighter called uh, J Jimmy Colon, an old one. He has a trick also, by the way. Yeah. He presses something here and you can't lift oh, him. Yeah. A small, he was a bantamweight. His name is... Uh, Colon. Uh, no, his name was... Coulon. Uh, Coulon, ah, I know. Johnny Coulon. Yeah. He's in Chicago. He still lives. Old man. He's, he's got a boxing gym there. Yeah, he was manager for uh, the Eddie Perkins. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, right. Do you know uh, do you know old bo boxers and old boxing huh? history also? Do I know who? Do you know the name Sam Langford, for instance? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Old time fighter. Yeah, he didn't get a break, never. No, like no, he was living in the heart. It was hard on blacks. Yeah. Yeah. Those days is real rough. Yeah. But ain't they rough now too? Mm, not really. It's rough. You make it rough. If you're mentally alive, we who are Muslims, under the fall of Elijah Muhammad, we we have it easy because we're free mentally. We are no longer uh, Christians. We no longer call ourselves Negroes, we're Muslims. And now we're citizens of uh, 800 more million Muslims on the planet. I've been to Mecca, recognized all the kings. So there's no trouble when you're free and you know the Islam religion, and you pray to Allah, and you're Muslim, you're free. You have a home in every country on earth. So I have a home in every Muslim country. I have a home where I can eat a place to stay, Muslim governments. I'm invited to, uh, uh, invited by the government today. I was invited to, uh, 
uh, Indonesia and a place called uh, uh, Indonesia and Morocco. The, the both governments came to me and they want me to visit the country. I just left Syria, Kuwait, uh, just left uh, Riyadh, Arabia, Jeddah, Mecca, Arabia, Medina, and uh, met all the holy people of the East, the kings, the governors, the mayors of the cities. Um, I have a home in Riyadh, Arabia that King Faisal's son gave me, uh, Prince Faisal. And uh, it's true that being popular has helped me, but anybody from America who returns, who becomes Muslim under the fellowship, the leadership of Elijah Muhammad, becomes free all of a sudden. So, like, there's no problems for blacks as long as they're Muslims, but those who are not Muslims, they're problems. What does your religion say about uh, violence? Well, we don't believe in violence. The word Islam means peace. Muslim means entire submission to the will of God. And we strip ourselves of weapons. And we don't think violence is the solution to no problem unless it's a holy war, something declared by Allah, God, the divine supreme being. And he fights our battles in, with nature and in the way he see fit. So we have nothing to do with violence, especially when it comes to black people and white people in America, because there's not enough black people to even think of violence. They don't manufacture no weapons, don't control no jet airplanes, don't make no bombs, and it would be a total mismatch. It'll be like you jumping in the rain with me trying to win. It wouldn't even have a chance. So we don't, we're not that ignorant. We don't even think about, we don't even consider a physical confrontation with America or nobody. We're peaceful. But Allah fights the battles. He's got ways of doing it with nature. Tornadoes, droughts, hurricanes, disasters, and just everything happens when God himself is moving. But uh, what about your boxing then? I, isn't that a kind of, of uh, violence yeah, after all, even if it right. is a special case? Well, uh, see, it's not the action that makes a thing right or wrong, but the purpose behind the action. See, I could kill a man today, being violent, kill a man tomorrow, and the same judge will uh, send me t up for death for the one I killed today and the one I killed uh, yesterday, I don't get a day. Why? It, because the purpose in killing the first man, he was in my house in my bed with my wife. I don't get a day in jail, I can kill them both. Then the next fellow I killed was over argument over our beliefs. Then I go to jail for life, I, I, I'm killed. So what the judge's case is, is that it's the purpose, why did he kill? Was he just or unjust? So it's the purpose that makes a thing right or wrong. My purpose in boxing is not to kill. My purpose is not to hurt. This is why I'm criticized for not knocking out James Ellis when I could have hurt him. Buster Mathers, I could have probably killed him. If I, fighters can have brain concussions. One died not long ago, Joshua Vallow's bomb partner. So I think the best precaution is when you see you win the fight to lighten up if you see you got the man unconscious or helpless, why pound him and beat him until the referee stop it just to please the crowd. So I'm justified by God himself. 
Allah because my heart and my purpose is not to kill. In war, in violence, the purpose is to kill mama, kill daddy, kill baby, use machine guns, use bombs, use fire, use poison. And in boxing, we have a referee, we have doctors. The, the roughest thing we have in boxing is the girls. And I think if war or violence was considered like boxing, we would have many deaths in violence or war because if it was like boxing, all they would use is padded gloves and not steel and all guns. So when we look at it and break it down scientifically, we'll find out that beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no way you can compare boxing with violence, only unless your intention is to be violent. If your intention is to create harm and cause a fixed friction in blood, then we can say it's violent. It's up to the man and his motive and his purpose. So my purpose is not to hurt or to kill. It's just a sport, and that's the way I box. Beautiful, fast, class, rhythm, dancing, and art. So boxing is not in no way considered with violence. And because I don't make it that way. Has, has your attitude to, to, to your sport changed uh, uh, from the time you, you uh, uh, got a Muslim? Did you, did you think in another way before you, you got a Muslim? Mm, yeah, get a man, I'll try to kill him. And if he died, it wouldn't have made no difference. But now I couldn't live with myself if I killed somebody just over a sport event. And they died, and Bruce would bring grief to the family, their children, and I had something to do with it just to please a bloodthirsty crowd. I'm too civilized for that. In the barbaric days, they did that in Rome. They let two men kill each other, and they sat there and drank wine and watch it, and that's real silly. I'm not that angry at nobody to kill them. So the religion has caused all of that. But what about your fights with Ernie Terrell and, and Floyd Patson? If you look back, how do you regard those fights? Oh, those were two of them that power structure used to call me Cassius Clay. They didn't, they didn't want to call me Muhammad Ali. And I just uh, punished them. I didn't hurt them. I just gave them a good whoop. If somebody, if some of your fools uh, acts in the same way now, would you act same, in the same, same way? Same punishment. Yeah, give them a good holy whooping, religious pardon, divine whooping, chastisement. Don't you think that the attitude of your of your opponents, they have changed. They, they, you are much, you are accepted now. You were not some years ago. Isn't that right? Yes, because things that I did then weren't popular, but they're common today. And everybody's believing it and doing it. Same with the drafts, the black power movement, and everything that I do, most black people are doing now. Change your names, black people in America, Lou Alcindo, the great basketball player, and Leroy Jones, civil rights leaders, and more of them are starting to change their names now, their African names. So all this is, well, I was just about eight years ahead of my time. So they all see now that I was right. You lost a lot of money because you were two, uh, eight years ahead of the others. Do you regret that? No, I'm making it all back now. More than ever, I'm making more money now and fighting more regular than I did then. So that's really made me more popular, more greater. And you don't consider the lost when you're fighting for your life or for your family or for your freedom or your religion or your God. 
then the money means nothing. Even life and death means nothing. So we don't consider the loss when we're doing it from our heart and doing it for what we want to do. If we do it for profit, then it ain't from the heart. Or if we worry about what we lose, then we didn't do it from the heart. So I don't, to me, it's no, I don't think of the word loss. It was a delight and a pleasure to stand up against powers for my black people and my God in this slave society that we have in America. And it's an honor. I'll do it 10 more times, and I'm just sorry it's over, and I'm still not fighting it. Ain't nothing for me to do now, but I like the idea of standing up for my freedom and the poor black slave people. So I love it. There ain't no losses of welcome. America loses 40 and 50 million dollars a day in Vietnam, but she don't say it's a loss. She's just standing up for her principle. So what's a few dollars to free the black folks? They ain't free yet. Out of all the Vietnam fighting, all the Japanese, the Korean. German fighting, the Negroes still ain't free. And the same Viet Cong can go where Negroes can't go day after the war. So I ain't gave up a damn thing. I can't give up enough. My life wouldn't be enough. So there ain't no loss when you think like that. It's for 30 million black people in America, so it can't pay enough. America fights and spends billions to free other nations and kill her own and black people to free other nations. So what's a few dollars for the poor Negroes for our fight? But one thing you have lost that you regret, I know that's the title, isn't it? No, I haven't lost the title either. That's a strange thing. Joe Frazier makes $150,000 for his fights and I get 300000 Joe Frazier draws as much as 6,000 people. I draw 40 and 50,000 and here I'll draw about 14,000. Joe Frazier's two fights since I fought him was seen on home television. They're cheap. My fight's going to be bounced across the world where you have to pay to come in. So uh, uh, there's no comparison. Joe Frazier saw two fights and this will be my fourth fight. Next month I'm fighting Chevalo in Vancouver, Canada. It'll be my fifth fight. And all the people that I'm fighting are more popular and a higher rank than the two people he fought. So I'm the champion of the people, the champion of the physical world, and he's only, and not only the champion of the world, I'm the first fighter to fight in the Mideast who could attract these people. I'm the first one to box exhibitions all throughout Arabia, Riyadh, uh, all throughout Abu Dhabi, Kuwait, Syria, Lebanon, and I'm the first one to uh, be recognized in the real world. I'm going on to China from here, Red speaking. Then we're going around to Russia to box. So I'm the first real world champion who's actually been in these countries doing something to recognize. Well, most of them just recognizing white countries, England and Germany. And that's it, a ring magazine of boxing books. But I've gone way past boxing. I have movie companies all over Japan following me around the world doing interviews. And, and the, so what I'm trying to say is, like, I haven't, I whooped Frazier physically. He went to the hospital one month, and uh, the world knew it, and they saw me win nine rounds, and they gave it him because I'm a Muslim. They gave it him because I didn't go to Vietnam. I was still fighting that. And the world see it, and they're proving it because I'm employed and Joe Frazier's unemployed. But I will be recognized again on paper, as you say, when I get him next time, because next time I'm going to annihilate him. What do you mean by that? 
destroy him. What's that? Beat him until the people knows that I'm the winner. You're very anxious to fight him anyway. Mm, not really. He's more anxious to fight me because he ain't making no money and he's losing popularity and everywhere he goes, people don't believe he's champion. They keep bringing up my name and they don't recognize him and they keep saying I won and he won't be recognized until he whooped me twice. So he's really more anxious to whoop me because you have to whoop the champion twice before you're recognized. I had to beat Sonny Liston twice. And uh, Floyd Patterson had to beat Ingemar Johansson three times. Twice? And, yeah, twice. So it's, uh, people don't go for it, especially when it's close. So they just have to whoop me decisively before they believe it. What went wrong last time? Two more minutes, I gotta let you go. Uh, I just played last time. I didn't play like I should. I won nine rounds and I lost six. Still won the fight. But last, I played with him three rounds as I stood there and let him throw punches to show he couldn't hurt me. And I uh, didn't dance and move around like I should. I was in good shape physically, but I wasn't right mentally. So next time I'll be more serious and getting in better shape too. I gotta let you go, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much.